Today I'll be today I'll be reading from Mark chapter 10, 35 through 45. I'm going to ask you to imagine a situation in which I'm assuming you'll find out very quickly is not a real setting or situation. There's a conference speaker who has over the weekend been conducting a speech in front of several hundred people. Uh, this conference has been titled by the same name as that author's best-selling book. And afterwards, the author has graciously agreed to stay behind and to sign some of the books. And so after the conference, he takes a seat and people begin to line up. As people are lining up, they, they hear a little bit of, of scuffle in the back. It begins with some murmurs that turn into some yellings. And then it seems like body parts are flying, like a fight has broken out. Someone quickly calls the police. And the police report to the scene and they ask about what's going on. One of the people said that there was this fight because this guy got into line and the other guy didn't want him to be there and they began to fight. And at that moment, the police officer began to laugh and everybody's wondering why he's laughing. And the police officer says, is this correct that this is the author who wrote the book, How to Be the Least of All and the Last of All? <laughs> I mean, isn't that ironic? That a person who would be teaching about that and writing about that and then people would be fighting in the very middle of all of that about who ought to be first. Well, it's perhaps not so fictitious if we remember and recognize what is happening here in Mark 10. See, we find in Mark 10.32 that Jesus is on the road once again. The road again being the pathway to Jerusalem. And it is here in Mark 10, 32 that we find he is going to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. See, Jesus has been teaching a leadership workshop for his disciples and so far very little of it has been sticking. And he has been, if these sermons sound awfully familiar, that's because the content of Jesus' teaching is awfully repetitive because he wants to be sure that we don't miss it. So he goes ahead of them. What we see is the pathway by which Jesus walks, the road that he takes, will be the very same pathway and the very same road that those of us who follow will be called to take. And he tells us what that road looks like in Mark 10, 33 and 34. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit upon him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. And in this passage, I want you to take note of the active and the passive role of Jesus. In this text, Jesus only plays one active role. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem. That's the only decision that he makes that, that controls his own fate. The decision to head in the direction of Jerusalem. But once he gets there, he plays what most scholars will call a divine passive. He plays a passive role, not because he, has, he lacks the power to do anything about it, not because he lacks the authority to do anything about it, but because he's determined to be the will of the Father. 
He allows things to happen to him. He is handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. And then he is handed over to the Gentiles. And these things are done to him. He is condemned. He is mocked. He is spat upon. He is flogged. And he is killed. And in all those things he plays a passive role. Though at any moment he could have chose to be active. To run away or to flee from that fate. And after three days, we find now here not in an active sense, not in a passive sense, but in Greek, what is the middle tense? The middle voice being that which is done to somebody as a result of participating in. Jesus is raised by the power of God, raised by the power of the Spirit. And so Jesus moves towards Jerusalem. And he does that intentionally, knowing that when he is there, things will be done to him. He will have to drink a cup of which he will, does not seek to drink. And after that speech, that's when the fight begins to happen. We have James and John who say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. They want Jesus to sign a blank check. Jesus says to them, what is it that you want me to do? And they say, grant one of us to sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Does anybody else wonder if they fell asleep at this teachings that started back in Mark chapter 8, verse 27? Perhaps they've been skipping classes and they haven't been paying attention because what they are asking for is antithetical to everything Jesus has been asking of his disciples for now nearly three chapters. What they seek is authority and power and status. They have not been transformed or renewed in their minds because they still believe that the world operates much like a pyramid. And if you believe the world operates like a pyramid, you have two assumptions. Number one, there are less places near the top, and so only a select few will be able to occupy those seats. And you also believe that those at the top will be able to utilize those at the bottom because those at the bottom are supporting and bearing the burden for those who are at the top. And so before any of the other disciples can make a preemptive move, they decide we are going to be the first ones to secure ourselves those positions at the top of the pyramid. And Jesus in his response says, you do not know what you are asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they replied, we are able. And then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant for those whom it is being prepared. See, Jesus begins almost immediately to teach once again by an upside down counter-cultural kingdom. See, in the kingdom, we notice that sacrifice will play an important role. Participants cannot be driven by some form of selfish ambition for personal gain. Jesus says, you will drink the cup and you will be baptized with my baptism, but the end result is not for your gain, for your privilege, because there cannot be a guarantee of what the Father will do in response to that. And so as Jesus speaks of the cup, he is symbolizing that cup of suffering, of wrath, and of pain. And the baptism is being used metaphorically here to say that we will share with 
a sense of solidarity with Christ. As he entered into death, we too will enter into death. And these disciples lightly say, oh yeah, we can do that. And yet in the midst of it all, they miss the message. See, the Christian life, we will come to find, as Jesus said in 1030, he talked about the benefits of the kingdom, and he also included the word with persecutions. See, the great things, the important things, the significant things of the kingdom often come through sacrifice. We don't do it for the results. We do it because we are wanting to have solidarity with our master. And so we walk along the pathway. But then in Mark 10, 41, we find out that when the ten hear this, they began to be angry with James and John. Now, it's important to note the very word used for anger here is the same word that was used in 10.14. When Jesus saw the disciples' behavior stopping the children, he was indignant. And now the disciples are indignant. And the question is, are they indignant for the sake of another or for their own sake? We said last week it's really important that you pay attention to the things that make you angry. What reaches into the deepest part of your heart. They are angry because somebody acted before them to get one of the best seats. And now they're going to fight with those people because those are limited seats at the top of the kingdom. And what is that? the heart of their passion and anger is their own selfish ambition. They want seats at the top. See, this is a temptation in leadership. To invest our most passionate energy in things that most directly impact and advance our agenda. And Jesus wants our most passionate energy to be utilized for the sake of those who need to be served. See, none of them seem to be properly grasping this new kingdom picture Jesus is painting. And so Jesus calls them together. And he says to them, you know, among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." And so Jesus is contrasting here life within the kingdom and life outside the kingdom, leadership in the kingdom and leadership outside the kingdom. See, the problem with the form of leadership that comes outside of the kingdom is it is about dominance, it is about authority, and it is about a selfish use of power. They lord it over. That means that they are heavy-handed in their use of authority for their personal enlargement. You see, that the reason they are fighting for those few seats at the top is so that they can have a better end and a better life for themselves. And so those great ones will become tyrants, a word used of rebels who hope to take over the existing power. So they're going to revolt against who's in the seat so they can have the seat, so they can now get the luxuries that one finds at the top of the pyramid. But for Jesus, kingdom leadership looks different he says, but it is not so among you. See, Jesus is not opposed to leadership, but he is opposed to a form of leadership that is an expression of authority and power. And so Jesus uses these surprising phrases as he speaks of leadership. It is to be a servant, 
which first of all, we find servant has an element of voluntary submission. Several weeks ago, we mentioned Plato who says, how can a man be happy if he is a servant? And now Jesus ups the ante a little bit. He says not just servant, but now he will say the word slave. A person who is involuntarily working. And all of this he is pointing to the cross, giving one's life as a ransom for many. See, kingdom leadership looks like the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said would happen in Jerusalem. With power he would be handed over. And he would suffer for the sake of others whom he sought to ransom. We're all familiar with this concept that there is a debt that we cannot pay. Christ does that for us. And in Mark it is to say, you who lead ought to do the same for others. See, it is our suffering in the place of another that reminds us of the cross of Christ. I've adapted a, what I think is a helpful chart as we begin to unpack and look at this context in our setting. Uh, Andy Crouch put this together, and I've adapted parts of it. But, but he, he helps us to realize what power looks like in the kingdom, what authority looks like, and what service looks like. Authority is, of course, the capacity for meaningful action. It is your ability to impact or influence or direct or coordinate the thoughts or behaviors of someone else or of your own self. And then there is either, whether you call it risk or you call it vulnerability, it's your potential for suffering, specifically for the sake of another. And so in this exploiting category, in the top left, this is the leadership of the Gentiles. They have high authority and low risk. See, what they do is they create a system where those at the top of the pyramid are insulated and protected. They are comfortable. And the reason they are insulated and protective is that they are reaching into some of these other quadrants, specifically of the little ones, and they are utilizing them to build that firm foundation of their pyramid. And they can do that because they have the authority to do that. And so they become tyrants who rule over others. They will see the little ones as commodities that they can exploit for their own gain. They will make decisions that benefit their own constituents. They will advance their own agenda. Everyone else will bear the burden of their leadership, and they will enjoy the fruits of it. This type of leadership will find its worst forms in things like slavery, child labor, and the oppression of others. And then there is the withdrawing category. This is a person who may or may not have access to authority, to the ability to do something about it, but they refuse to utilize their authority. And so thus they have low functional authority. And the reason is simple. They don't want to stick their neck out because they don't want to risk the comfort that they have. They will ignore the suffering. They will ignore the things that are going on because they're not willing to pay the price, the risk that is associated with making a stand. They're not the people who are directly doing the oppressing, but they are part of a system and they support a system that upholds oppression because they don't want to risk any of the comfort that they have come to find from this system. And then there are the little ones, those with low authority and who are highly vulnerable and highly at risk to the abuses of people in the other categories. In Mark, we've seen them exemplified as children, as the sick, as the leprous, as the blind, as the demon-possessed. 
And in each of those cases, we have seen Jesus working towards upholding and honoring and treating with dignity those who are the little ones around him. See, they don't make the rules, and they don't get invited to the meetings where the rules are made. And so that's why they're so vulnerable against those who are at the top of the pyramid. But in the top right, we have the servant leader category. Those who have high authority, but also who have high personal risk. The power that is given to them is because of their conduct. It is relationally grounded and is grounded in love. See, what the servant leader does different than the exploiting leader is they use the little ones not to their own benefit, but they suffer in order to lift up and exalt those who are the little ones. See, those who exploit power, they consolidate it, but those who serve, they multiply the power and authority. Those who exploit see the little ones as pawns in use of their greater gain, and those who serve ask if there is another burden they can carry on behalf of the little ones. They build one another up. And Andy Crouch, I think it's helpful, he gives what I think is an understandable illustration for all of us, and that's of a mother and a newborn child. I mean, a newborn child, you cannot get any, any higher risk and lower authority. A newborn child can do almost nothing for themselves. And what does a loving mother do? In the middle of the night when the baby wakes up, she wakes up. And when a diaper needs to be changed, she changes the diaper. And so mothers do all these amazing things because they want to build up their children, to build them up into a place where they themselves will be able to make right decisions. It's grounded in love, and it's grounded in relationships. And I think that there are some direct applications for us, first of all, in the church. For me, a, a key verse has been Matthew 23, 4, where, where Jesus says, Of the Pharisees, they tie heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Does that sound like servant leadership or exploiting leadership? Where they don't risk anything personally. Where, where they simply say, well, if you were better, you would do this. And if you were better, then you do this. And they say, can you help me? And you say, sorry, not my problem. A servant leader takes those burdens, takes that suffering upon him or herself. See, if we want to be passionate about something, we need to be willing to carry the sacrifice and take a personal risk for that outcome. Servant leaders will carry the burden. They will, in essence, go to the cross on the behalf of another person. Robert Greenleaf says a good question you can ask to determine if a person is a servant leader is, do those who are served grow as people? See, the more they grow and the more they flourish and the more they develop, the more Christ-like leadership we find the more we remove their burden and we place it on ourselves. See, I think this week that we will find ourselves in many leadership positions. See, it doesn't matter whether you're nine years old or you're 90 years old. You've seen it happen in the classroom, even in first grade, where the bigger kid in the first grade says to the smaller kid in the first grade, you better give me your sandwich or else. We see exploiting leadership even in the first grade. But will we see servant leadership also? 
where a person who is respected in the classroom will say, don't talk to other people that way, or will befriend somebody who needs to be befriended. You see, the invitation here for Jesus is an invitation for all of us, whether we be parents or grandparents, whether it be in, the, in, in our jobs, whether it be in the classroom, whether it be with an older sibling or a younger sibling or in the Bible classroom, there are ample opportunities for those of us who have a little power to use it for our own benefit. And there are ample opportunities for us to use it to serve others. And the final warning as we begin to walk away from this text is this. When Jesus asked the disciples, can you drink the cup? Can you be baptized with the baptism I am? They immediately said, yes, we are able. This calling is not a light calling. We will find that when Christ was at the place he had to drink the cup, did he say, no worries, God, it's simple for me. Don't you find it ironic that Jesus has more humility and wrestles more with the cup than the disciples even say they will wrestle with the cup? Oh, let us not be the people who say, oh, Father, if everyone could be a servant leader like me, how many times this week have I passed over the cup? How many times this week have you passed over the cup? And so we look to the cross as the primary example of one who says, says not here, I want to put these burdens on you. The cross is the example of I'm taking these burdens from you and I will bear it on my own shoulders. The more we stand in the presence of the cross, perhaps the more likely we will be to live as servants in the presence of others. So I encourage you this week to seek out someone you can serve. I think there's little ones in all of our lives that we encounter, people who are forgotten, people who are overlooked, people who are neglected. What's one thing you can do this week to carry the burden of that person? May it never be that we will ever use those who are lower on the social scale for our own advancement. May we too find ourselves as people on the way to Jerusalem, knowing that he goes ahead of us and before us. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And this work of serving will not be done by our own power or ability. It will be done if we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we go empowered by the love of God. And if we go full of the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. As we sing our final song, I'll be in the back. Some of our elders will be back there. If you want somebody to pray with. Um, if you want to see what service looks like in your life, just invite you to come to the back while together we stand and sing.